This is the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm Howard Jacobson of plantyourself.com. Two quick announcements before today's episode. First of all, I am thrilled to announce that, drumroll please, Josh Lajani, my friend, my business partner, my running coach, and my life mentor, has won the Runner's World cover search for 2016. That's right. A plant-based athlete is going to be on the cover of Runner's World for the December 2016 issue, and I believe that hits the newsstands around middle of November. So be sure to pick one up and, you know, go around and, like, wave it in your meat-eating friends' faces. And no, don't do that. Just uh, go grab a copy, read the article, and also... If you go to Runner's World magazine online, runners, runnersworld.com, go scroll down till you see about the two winners of the uh, of the, the search. Josh is a winner, and then there's a female winner, Eileen Moon, who also has a really inspiring story. Frankly, all 10 finalists were really inspiring, and I would have been thrilled for any of their stories to get out there. But I'm especially thrilled that Josh's is going to be you know, splashed on the, the cover of Runner's World and people all over the world are going to hear his incredible story of transformation and courage and compassion and I couldn't be happier for him or prouder. Yeah, so that's that. Also, when you uh, watch the video of Josh, it's about a five and a half minute video profile, keep your hankies handy. All right, along with that, we are, because of all this excitement, we've put off reopening the Big Change program. And in fact, we're going to be reopening it in January. So the next bobsled run of the Big Change program, a year-long program to help you achieve your health goals, your fitness goals, to really transform your life. It's so much, it goes so much deeper than just diet and exercise. The people who are taking it now, I'm, I'm starting to collect some testimonials and uh, their stories. And you'll see this really is a, a, a transformative process. And with Josh leading the way, as you know, he's, you know, the poster child and literally the cover model for big change. Um, all of us, including myself, are making big changes this year and all for the better. So we're going to be opening that up um, the middle of November, around November 17th. And during the six or six or so weeks before the group cohort starts, we'll be giving you all sorts of preparation stuff and um, home study material. So you won't be in the lurch, but the whole group process and the whole group experience is really powerful. So we're going to begin that in January. And now we're, we're limiting it to 60 people. And with Josh's newfound fame, that's going to fill up really fast. So... If you're hearing this and you're not on my email list, the Plant Yourself email list, go to plantyourself.com, sign up, give me your name and email, and then you will be among the first people to know when the program opens up and you can sign up and get in. We're going to be doing these, my estimation is three times a year. So if you don't get in in January, you'll have to wait until April or May for the next run. Okay, and now to today's episode. My guest, Darshana Thacker, is the culinary program manager for Forks Over Knives, and she is the chef who created the 125 kid-friendly recipes in the brand new Forks Over Knives family book. And she's been a Forks Over Knives insider since the very beginning, because in addition to being a top-notch plant-based chef, she is also Forks Over Knives producer Brian Wendell's girlfriend. 
So originally, I wanted to ask Darshana about the Forks Over Knives Odyssey from her perspective, but what our conversation turned into was much richer and much better than just that. So we talked about her own journey from 1970s India to California, from the traditional homemade food of her family to the delights of greasy westernized fare among India's burgeoning middle class, to her discovering her own passion for cooking through the Food Network and her penchant for healthy plant-based cooking once she met Brian. And we discussed the milestones and the triggers for her transition to plant-based eating and her really interesting combining of plant-based food with traditional Indian Ayurveda, uh, which is an ancient health and food tradition that in some ways uh, complements plant-based eating completely and in some ways is in a little bit of conflict. You know, they're, they're not averse to a little dairy uh, now and then, uh, especially in terms of like ghee and things like that. And we talked about how she creates fun, delicious, and kid-friendly recipes for her new cookbook. And you don't just have to buy the cookbook because listening to her talk and think about templating meals will make it really easy for anyone listening to this interview to come up with dozens of ideas for how to feed your own family. So without further ado, Darshana Thacker, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast. Thank you, Howard. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. And I'm happy to talk about your the new cookbook or the new book that has a cookbook in it, The Forks Over Knives Family Recipes. And... Um, I'd like to begin just with your, your story, because on, on your website, you talk about, um, you know, I guess growing up vegetarian mostly, um, but in, uh, in India and, and being part of a cooking family and cooking tradition that sounds extremely um, sort of robust. Yes, it was. Like, uh, the, uh, this was in the 70s, and... Uh, at that time, we didn't have fast food as such. Uh, you know, like it was just in big cities. And we didn't have restaurants that were open all night long. We didn't have, you know, like takeout or home delivery of food as such. So everything, like even, you know, like snacks, going out for picnics, you know, uh, like traveling, everything, for every purpose, we had to make our food fresh and take it with us. And so there was no, not so much of packaged food. And so that's why I, I, I saw my, my mom and my aunt spend a lot of time in the kitchen cooking. And that's where we all also used to congregate and all the kids would be around the aunts and moms and watching and learning and tasting. And, you know, that was, that was our time, you know, yeah, like spending our time in the kitchen was one of the most precious moments of my childhood. Yeah, it's funny because like one of the the things that everybody's trying to do in America, you know, is is like make it as easy and quick as possible to to get, yeah. get our food ready. And I totally understand that. And yet, I think you know when you describe this, and especially on the, the the visions on the website of like all these you know aunts and grandparents and mothers and all the children working together to prepare this fresh food, it's, it's like we we lose something when we adopt a totally efficiency mindset? Yes, I think for me, what I see is that the connection to the food, the quality of the food, and the, the interaction we have with the food once we've ha- eaten it, that is somehow getting lost because we are not 
the ones who are creating it. We are, you know, we just buy prepared food and we eat it. So there is some connection that is missing because it doesn't really get created in our kitchen. Yeah, I remember. You yeah, know, I've 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 always been sort of like prone to overeating or eating very quickly. And I remember the first time I was maybe twenty years old. I followed a recipe and I made pickles. And like you know, for real pickles, it takes like two to three weeks. And I remember right. the first time wanting to eat it slowly because <laughs> it just <laughs> it just took so damn long to make. I didn't want to like polish it off. <laughs> That's a great point. You know that the appreciation of food is much more than you have spent time creating it. Of course, yeah. So, um, you know, you, you, you mentioned that, like, you're cooking everything from scratch, you know, at that point. Um, but then, I guess, you know, the 70s passed, and even in the, the small town outside of Mumbai, more Western food was becoming available. What did that, what did that look like? Oh, well, what it really meant were there were uh, restaurants were serving more, even on the, the street vendors, they all were serving food that was, more greasy, you know, had more dairy and, you know, cream and butter and paneer, which is the Indian cheese made out of, you know, like uh, coagulated milk. Um, it was like they used more of it. So it was like giving richness to the food. And this was from the street food to the high-end restaurants. In all levels, that started happening. People started eating out a lot because that was a sign of affluence. And, you know, it's, uh, also like in India, people really, you know, the, you could call the whole country foodies, you know, full of foodies. <laughs> so everybody loves to go out to eat. And then, as you know, that the more fatty food, the more oily, greasy, salty and sweet food you have, the more you get addicted to it. And so that's why it's, I've seen like it has become more and more. And I feel right now it's like to the maximum, you know, where people are also now, meat has also become a part of it now. You know, there was a lot of vegetarianism at that time, but now meat is more prominent in people's diet. You know, like in India, there's so many different communities and there are some communities which you would always consider to be vegetarian. But now even in that community, in those communities, I see a lot of people giving up those Hindu values of, you know, uh, not eating meat and, you know, being vegetarian and eating meat because it's, they want to be, you know, like part of the international community, which, you know, hmm. in that sense, you know, meat consumption has grown, uh, gone up quite a lot. So has dairy, of course. Right. But meat, has, yeah. Yeah. So, and I mean, cheese. yeah, when, like, when you were cooking with your family, these traditional recipes, they weren't like whole food plant-based, like they had oil and they had dairy, but I guess it was, it was a lot less than, yeah. than, than now. Cause when I think of Indian food, you know, I, I think of restaurants and there, you know, there's a lot of dairy, a lot of oil, like, you know, I kind of have to brace myself and, and order, yes. order very intelligently. Um, and, and so my, you know, Indian friends will often say, you know, especially the foodies that, well, that's, that's yeah. our tradition. And, you know, it's that proves that coconut oil is healthy because 100 million Indians can't be wrong. But it's really it's really changed a lot in the last 40, 50 years, hasn't it? Yes, it has. It has definitely changed. It never used to be this greasy. It, it, did, it didn't used to be. There are certain dishes 
which are like, you know, fried or certain delicacies in certain communities, you know, where things are deep fried or double fried. But it's not like every dish is like that. It didn't used to be. And now it, I see it more, you know, like that, in, especially in restaurants. At home, still people try to, you know, keep it a little less. But I still feel like ghee is, you know, still used so much. Like, you know, if you ask an Indian to give up ghee, it's like sacrilege, you know. Huh. And ghee, ghee is, a, is a form of butter, right? It's, yeah, it's clarified butter. And, uh, yeah, it's like in every, almost every dish. Uh, dairy is, uh, you know, like dairy is part of almost every dish, kind of, you know. Mm-hmm. In a, uh, but it's also easy to r- replace, you know, like if, if, if somebody wants to go vegan, but not like plant-based, where we teach to go oil-free too. Mm-hmm. But if you want to go vegan, it is very easy to remove the key and replace it with oil. And then if you want to go a little further, as we teach in the books uh, in a, and on our website and many other websites teach oil-free cooking, which is even easier and, you know, much easier than cooking with oil, I sometimes feel. Right. Especially cleaning afterwards is much easier. <laughs> right. So, so when you were eating this way as a child, um, I mean, the people around you, I'm guessing, were, were rel- and you were relatively healthy and had energy and felt pretty good? Uh, mostly, yes. I still felt like, you know, somehow maybe I was more in tune with, you know, the food and how it made me feel like there was a little bit grease, as I said, like, you know, fried food and like oil and ghee and, you know, the other dairy products were so, so much in so many dishes that the overall experience was of, you know, feeling a little heavy even in daily eating. Uh-huh. So even if, for example, in Indian uh, cuisine, you tend to have a lot of different condiments and you have snacks, which are mostly deep fried. So when you have a, 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 the main course, which is like the chapati or the rice and the dal and the vegetables, if you look at them, they may not appear to be greasy, but if you have the condiments which are the oily pickles and they have this uh, you know fried papad you know papadam is so popular uh-huh. so if you had all of those things put together the overall you know fat content of the meal would go up yeah. so those finer those finer things i could sense i could not really exactly pinpoint but i could sense that there is something, you know, heavy about this meal. So I personally used to experiment and cut down on the oils. And I have, I have was like interested in eating healthy always. Uh-huh. And that's, the, so my journey, uh, you know, towards my current lifestyle has been since my teenage years, you know, but it has evolved a lot in, in the last 10 years. Right. So you, you yeah. were still in India when you discovered the Food Network. Is that right? Uh, food? No, you meant fork, forks over knives. No, like you, you, you no. you'd like discovered like cooking shows. Oh, oh yes, of course, yes, yes. I was in India. Yep. So I what was, was what was, was that in... like to see? Like, was that the first time you were exposed to like real Western cuisine and and like it must be a whole different culture of cooking. 
Yes, it was, especially in a vegetarian home to see all the meat being cooked was a little, <laughs> a little difficult, you know. But that was what, you know, like it was on, I think uh, Food Network was uh, like, I think it was on BBC channel or something. So being broadcast from the West, we didn't, they didn't, you know, filter it out for vegetarian, uh, <laughs> you know, vegetarian. So I was, I was stuck with whatever they were showing. And so I started ignoring what the the meat part was, but I was looking at the technique and I was looking at the different, you know, yeah, the di- different ingredients and how to like cre- create new dishes out of that. And that was very inspiring. Uh-huh. Yeah. And I started experimenting at home then. Uh, and that's when I really started cooking. I, For all the years that I spent in the kitchen watching my mom and my aunt cook, I was just absorbing it, but I was not into cooking. I was just into watching and learning. In, in a very indirect way, I was learning, but I was not at all interested in cooking. I started cooking in my 20s when I was watching the Food Channel and you know, getting inspiration from there. And then getting more and more inspired by getting the feedback from my family when they used to try out my food. Uh-huh. Yeah, so that's how it all started. So what what made you uh, emigrate to the United States? Uh, well, it was uh, just wanted to be, you know, to uh, exp- I felt like I was like, you know, an international person. Like I just didn't belong in one commu- uh, environment. Uh-huh. So I wanted to ex- expand my environment. And I also wanted to try to live by myself. But doing that in India close to my family would have been, impossible because you know indian families are so protective <laughs> so i had i had to move away from them in order to experience you know that kind of freedom and responsibility at the same time and yeah. that's why i moved to the us so did you move with the, with the thought of becoming a chef or a cook or something in the in mm. food preparation no when i moved here my only interest was to cook for friends and family you know, like I still love throwing parties and cooking a feast for everybody. Uh-huh. So that was my only interest in cooking. And, and then, of course, uh, cooking for myself a little bit, you know, cooking healthy food for myself. But I, it was never in my mind that this would be my profession one day. Uh-huh. So, so what happened? Yeah. Uh, well, firstly, uh, I... I met my boyfriend, Brian, uh, in 2003, and he, you know, he talked to me about uh, veganism. And that was my first step towards whole food plant-based lifestyle. And I completely resonated with it because, you know, I I was vegetarian at that point. I had not had meat for a long time. And I, I adopted it right away. And because of that, and I lived with my, uh, my, my sister and her family at that point, and they were not vegan. So it was like I had to make my own food and all. So I was spending more time in the kitchen. So that, that's where I started experimenting a bit more and really, you know, uh-huh. trying out new ways of cooking traditional food that I knew or any food that I knew was not vegan and veganizing it. Mm-hmm. And that's where it started. And then slowly... So can, can, uh, I, in- can I ask you a question about that? Because it's... Yeah. You know, you come from such a rich food culture and it's been so successful. That there's some, some part of me that thinks like if someone comes to you and says, 
well, you're doing good, but you could do better if you get rid of the dairy. Like, I don't know. It's, 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 it seems like it'd be very easy to push back against that and say, well, you know, no, this is a rich culture. Like, you know, dairy has a place in like our, our food philosophy of Ayurveda. What, what made you so receptive to the idea of eliminating dairy? It was the animal rights aspect of it and the environmental aspect of it, which was very important to me. And it, it, there was no doubt in my mind that, oh, you know, like the first part was that. Then comes the health, you know, the health consequences. When I first understood that it, the impact it has on the animals, and especially dairy, because meat was, I felt like, okay, I'm being very, you know, like nonviolent by not having meat. I'm vegetarian. I thought, you know, I was doing well because the, my ethics, I mean, my ethics were of a vegan, even without practicing it in uh-huh. that moment. It was just the revelation of what the dairy industry, and I used to also have eggs at that time. I used to love eggs at that time. And then I understood what happens. And it is not, it's common sense when you think of it as a business. You can understand that there is you know, so many possibilities of uh, abuse happening, you know, uh-huh. when you're producing something on a mass scale and the product is a living being, you know, there's you know, possibilities of abuse happening. It wasn't logical. And so I, in that, you know, that right away, I knew that, no, this is not for me. And uh, thinking about it that, oh, it has been part of my culture, my taste buds, my diet and all that was secondary to me, you know, uh-huh. somehow it was, so instant, the understanding was instant, and I knew it. I had to stop, and I stopped it. You know, as soon as I heard about it, there was this instant clarity. Right. And then the health, the outcome, you know, the the good part about eating vegan was, of course, I felt it in the following weeks right away. You know. Uh huh. And, and I should, yeah. we should say that, so. When you say your boyfriend Brian, you're talking about Brian Wendell, right? Yes. So yes. at you, that you, time we were not friends. We we, we were not uh, in a relationship. We were just friends for a very long time. So uh-huh. gotcha. yeah, and you didn't you didn't you didn't know at the time that like Brian Wendell turns out to be the most convincing human being on the planet for a vegan plant based lifestyle, right? If you if you just like uh, if you just look around well, at at like how much influence his work has had. Yes. He, you yeah. know, <laughs> like when yeah. I, you know, wherever I go to a veg fest or a con, a health conference or whatever, at some point, someone always asks like, how did you hear about us? Or how did you get started? And like 90% of the hands go up for forks over knives. Yes, that is true. So you, you, you is, were probably, amazing. you were probably his like first convert. <laughs> uh, this was in the first few years of him himself having turned vegan. He, he turned vegan in 2001. And he had been influencing a lot of people, but one at a time. And I think that was his impetus to, you know, make this documentary because he's, you know, he was thinking like, how can I just do this one at a time? This, this message is so important. And that's when he made the documentary. And I felt like, yes, I can, I can totally understand because it took him, it took him just one conversation with me for me to, you know, turn vegan right away. Uh-huh. And yeah. And so of course, it's been amazing, you know, to know that uh, it would go on to become such a, 
such a big, it would have such a big impact on so many people. Yeah. It's really. So, so I, ha- yeah. I have to ask this. It might be, it might be a bit of an obnoxious question, but like yeah. Brian's not, a, wasn't a filmmaker. He was like doing commercial real estate. Right. Yes. And he got this, like, did you think he was delusional? <laughs> like when, when he told you his plans? No, I didn't. In fact, I, when he first told me, we were just friends at that time and we had not been in touch for a little while, you know, doing our own things. And then when we connected and he said, that, hey, I have the, you know, I'm taking some time off from work to do this project. And I said, oh, my God, this is perfect for him. This is just perfect, you know, because knowing how passionate he was about this message, it just felt so right. And I was so happy when I heard it and I was yeah, it was really, it's perfect for him because he knew how to deliver the message. He had been doing it for so long and uh, he, he's really a smart person. So I was so confident that whatever he would do, it would be perfect. It would be a very well-made movie. Okay. So yeah. were, were, were you surprised at how important it became so quickly? Because there's you know, hundreds of documentaries. There's lots and lots of food documentaries. And there's lots of really yes. good, powerful food documentaries, but there's never been anything like Forks Over Knives. Like, yes. that has, you know, that we, like, you know, I've, I've watched a bunch of them and I go, ooh, I'm really mad about that. Or, ooh, you know, ooh, that's really interesting. Yes. Forks Over Knives, like, changed people's lives instantly. And I hear this story again and again and again. And did, like, when, when did you start to realize that this was lightning in a bottle? Uh, well, when I first saw the documentary, I saw like the potential of it, or I saw the need for it, first of all, for it to be big and to reach, you know, the masses in a big scale, because it was such an important message. And I, so I felt like we all, there are a lot of us who really saw the movie and felt like this needs to reach and there was a lot of prayer in my heart, especially that it does well and that it reaches the audience, you know? So I, I don't know from, I feel like I didn't know how big it would become in the first year or so. It Later on, it felt like, yeah, you know, when I saw how it was like, you know, escalating the excitement around it, you know, the, the response, you know, that you we were getting. Mm-hmm. So uh, the first year, of course, I wasn't aware. Brian was. He was always, you know, quite sure that it would do, you know. The message was so important and he brought it out, out so well. Uh, you know, he did such a great job. He was he was confident that it would do well. Great. And I'm happy he was. <laughs> yeah. It's, 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 right. It's pretty remarkable. Yes. So uh, so let's let's talk a little about the, the Forks Over Knives family, the new book. That, that just yeah. came out. So uh, Alona and Matthew, uh, Alona Poldy and Matthew Letterman, both doctors, um, and I guess married to each other with kids, right? They, yes. they wrote, they wrote the text and yes. um, you were chosen to provide the recipes. Yes, I have. Yeah. So what, what, what did they want? And I guess, you know, it was, I guess it was them and Brian and, and I don't know, Lee or you know, wh- whoever else is part of the, the strategic process of, of the Forks Over Knives family, what did people think was important in the recipes? Like, what, 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 were, they, what were they hoping to get from you? 
well, first of all, I this is how I understood. First of all, it had to be kid friendly, of course. It had to be, uh, you know, simple. But it also had to show the potential of translating the average, you know, American, what American kids are familiar with, you know, like pizzas and pastas and, you know, spaghetti with meatballs, how to convert those uh, pancakes, you know, uh, tacos and enchiladas, all these, how can you translate them into a healthy version of, you know, these dishes so that there is still the sense of abundance in our you know, it is a, it, this is a diet of, uh, a plant-based diet is a diet of abundance. And to sh- showcase that very well in the recipes, I think that was very important. Mm. And to make, yeah. And so, and, so uh, when you say kid-friendly, what, what, what does that yeah. look like? Because I know so many families are, you know, I coach a lot of, uh, of parents who are trying to make yes. the transition themselves. And, as, you know, as soon as they learn like what there is to learn, they feel terribly guilty about what their kids are eating, but they don't really know, you know, you can go online, you can find 12 billion recipes, but they're overwhelmed and they don't have a set of principles about what, what is appropriate for, to feed kids. So what, what, what do you see as important when you're talking about kid friendly? Oh, well, uh, it has to like, uh, like a diet, you know, diet based on like, grains and beans just just basic you know you mix grains and beans and you season it with just salt and pepper i think that's that would be enough for a, a child to you know get the uh, get the satisfaction get the nutrients so it's as basic as that you know some dishes can be as simple as that then you can have mashed potato and gravy which you know or you can have uh, mac, uh, mac and cheese uh-huh. Some, any of those things, but how you you bring out uh, you bring together grains and beans and vegetables together the co- combination of these that is you know like to show that is how that is what I, I have tried to show in this book and to my recipes like how to put in you know like how to give in some importance to vegetables in the dish you know without. Uh, compromising on what the children are used to or like, the textures that they like. They like crunchy, they like simple, they don't like sharp taste. So that, that has been my attempt here. Uh-huh. Does that answer your question? Yeah, I think so. It's, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, you know, it, feel, it feels like someone says to, you know, like create 125 recipes. It, it almost feels like it's, yeah. there's too many options. The, your, your palette is, is, you know, your painting palette is so wide open that you'd need, yeah. you'd need some constraints to say, okay, well, these fit into, into, you know, these belong in this book. Like, for example, were there recipes that you came up with that you ended up deciding were not right for this book? Uh, yes, there are a few. Like, uh, there were recipes which had, or, or there were ideas that I had which may not have, you know, fit the children's uh, palate, you know, like there may be too, too sharp or, you know, spices. Uh-huh. So I did have to cut down and mellow it out. And uh, that has been fine. You know, it has been easy too. 
And because I was having these recipes tested on my friends' kids, <laughs> I I used to get very critical feedback, you know, like, no, we don't like this. And I would know, you know, it is the, uh, the spices that they don't like, certain herbs that they don't like, certain combinations of herbs and spices and textures. So I had a lot of uh, feedback also that helped guide me, you know, mm. to were evolve you, them. Were you giving your friends the recipes or the the, the cooked food? Like, did they... The, the cooked food. Okay. So yeah. so they were they were getting it the way the way you thought it should be done. So there was no potential for user error. Yes, exactly. Like this is how I envisioned it and I would test it on the kids whether they liked it or not. Did you get feedback yeah. straight from the kids or was it through the parents? No, through the parents. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. so how did, how did you how did you convince them to be really honest? Cuz like if somebody you know, makes delicious food and gives it to me. I'm, I like want to go, Oh no, it was wonderful. Everything, you know, even I, I, yeah. I wouldn't want to uh, hurt your feelings. How did you, how did you get good feedback? Uh, one, one was to give it to different families, not just one, you know, only one family. It was different families. Some were adults, some were, you know, like different age range of kids. And uh, there were, there were a couple of the, families that were not couple one one family that was not completely that was not even vegan uh-huh. and and so and the kids are honest and uh, the parents knew that i needed honest feedback and I, I have always said like don't give me good feedback i don't want to hear if it's good give tell me what is not good with this you know that's more valuable to me when I'm developing recipes. So that's how I did, I did, and I did get, you know, I did get a lot of feedback that was, you know, like not good <laughs> before it got to being good. Right. You, that's, you look for that yeah. feedback before people start writing Amazon reviews. <laughs> yes. Yes, exactly. Okay. So, um, yeah, you know, as I said, there's, there are 125 recipes, but I'm, I'm also imagining, like based on the fact that it's a, it's a book with um, instruction and big ideas that you're also trying to, to teach people how to not need recipes, like how to, how to use the recipes almost as templates for their own yes. creativity. So how, how, how do you yes. help people with that? How do you think about that? Uh, very often in my notes, in my head notes or other notes, I have given, you know, I give suggestions of what you could do, you know, like, Sometimes uh, I do give a specific, uh, you know, beans or vegetable, and then I give substitutions that, oh, if you don't like this, if your kid doesn't like that, change it with something else. So they're always, you know, like, the, it's difficult to give for each recipe, although I would have wanted to, but it's, it, and it makes the whole recipe very tedious. But wherever I could, you know, put it in, I have tried to do that. And that, I think, gives people some idea, you know, how to go with the others. You know, like if you give one idea with one stew and you say that, oh, you could use chickpeas instead of red eyed, uh, red kidney beans. You know, then that, like if, if a person has just started cooking in the kitchen, they get that idea, oh, I could do the same with some other recipe where I could just switch out the beans that I want. Right. Uh, yeah, yeah I, I find the... Uh... 
the italicized notes between the title yeah. and the ingredients and instructions to be almost the most valuable part of the book. Like each, yeah. each, each sentence or two is like a cooking class. Exactly. Yeah, it's really, really nice way to you know, share something more about the dish or what you are trying to suggest and you know, also to put in some substitutions there. Right. Or some history about that recipe. Yes. Um, yeah. One of the other things that you write about in, in that section is how to get kids involved in preparing the food, which I, knowing your story makes a lot of sense. Yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. It, it, it was so important for me to, to really be there and see, you know, how things get from scratch to the finished product. You know? Right. And also, it it made me aware of the seasonal the fruit the seasonal fruits and food, how you change menu according to the season. Like I was observing, you know, like oh, my aunts and mom would talk about oh, um, it's summertime, so we're gonna have this particular berries, you know, available to us, or we're gonna make we're gonna pickle this, or we're gonna make a, a some cold drink out of this particular fresh uh, summer fruit, you know. So it was like that idea that oh, some things are meant to be eaten only certain time of the year because they are in their optimum, you know. Uh, uh, condition, right? Like uh, mangoes in the summer are just perfect. We we do get mangoes all year round. We get frozen mangoes, and, but something about you know picking mangoes in the summer, like having fresh mangoes in the summer, or uh, squash in winter. Yeah. And then you are yeah, and understanding. And this is where Ayurveda also comes in. You know, for me that I understood the whole science of food. You know, like how to merge spices and herbs based on the weather, based on your activity, you know. So there's so much involved in creating food. Yeah, let's, let's, but, um, let's can, we, can we talk yeah. about Ayurveda a little sure. bit? Cause, cause, sure. Because what I think about is, like there's Ayurveda cooking schools that are, that, that are kind of like, it's, it feels like they are an argument against vegan or, you know, 100% plant-based because they, you know, that, that everything fits into, into different categories and certain, like certain people should be eating more meat or more dairy or oil. And so I'm curious how you combine Ayurveda with the philosophy of a, a whole food plant-based diet. Yeah. I feel the, the people who, who say that Ayurveda, you know, like has these restrictions, that you know, certain people should have only certain things. Then they have. I, it, this is my opinion that they have not I understood Ayurveda. Ayurveda is a science of medicine that is designed, you know, that designs the treatment of an ailment for a particular person. That you know, the treatment is so personalized. It is so personalized to that person in that particular moment of time. It is that personal. So if, if it's something is that personal, it is also that vast, I feel. It's also what? So it, it's also that vast. It's not limiting. It's vast. It's okay. really expand. Yeah, it's expansive. 
so in, in, from the vegan perspective, what I'm trying to say is that if I am vegan or if, if, if it's not a personal choice, if it's my body which rejects dairy or meat, Ayurveda is not going to say that, oh, sorry, we can't treat you because of this. It would have a solution for it within its, you know, mm-hmm. uh, its treatment. And so what that means is like if I'm vegan, I still have all the uh, teachings of Ayurveda that I can incorporate in my vegan diet. All it means is like I'm not going to have meat, I'm not going to have dairy or eggs or honey or yeah, anything that is animal-based. But mm-hmm. I will still apply the principles of Ayurveda because the principles are the most important part. You know, It's about uh, the six tastes of Ayurveda, where the sweets, sour, salty, bitter, pungent, astringent. To incorporate all these tastes in, in a meal will give you a very satisfied and, and fulfilling you know, experience when you have all these tastes in your meal. It need not be that every each dish has to have all six, but if you have a meal that has a few dishes, but all those dishes cover up all these six tastes, it's a real nice experience, you know? Mm, and that that's really interesting because, you know, when people are struggling to change their diet, one of the things they feel yeah. like is, well, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not getting the pleasure that I used to get, right? I'm, yeah. not, I'm not having the salt, the sugar, the fat, um, the yeah. taste, you know, the tastes are muted. And so one of the things that I work with people on is to, is to kind of tone down their expectations to say, you know what, your food is going mm. to be more bland, but you're, you're saying that if you have these six tastes, you can get the same the sort of sensory fulfillment from yes. a meal without the the addictive stuff. Yes, exactly. Okay. So, but so what hap- what what it me- really means is this: when all the six tastes, you know, in your taste buds are uh, triggered, then. It you know as we salivate right and our, our saliva it's I've read it somewhere that it is like you know different parts of the tongue releases the saliva which which has different uh, properties I feel and that helps in appreciating those tastes and then digesting those in certain components in the food in you know so that collectively when you have all the six taste buds triggered. Your the, the digestion of food is also you know of a higher level mm. because because digestion does start from the tongue right from the mouth from the salivation right that's where the so, the starch yeah. the starch enzymes are in the are in the saliva yeah yeah so that's what I you know like that's how I feel like that's the starting point you know like it helps in the digestion and then the overall feeling of the you know nutrients being well absorbed from the food, so it, it's just like a chain reaction. I feel mm, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and so um, I'm, I'm hearing some of my listeners who are very sort of science based and and skeptical. Um, yes, chomping at the bit. You know, and I know I know Brian and the Forks Over Knives community. Yes. You're a bunch of science nerds, right? So you're always looking at like the latest from Colin Campbell and Caldwell Esselstyn. But there's, 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 and you know, the way you describe Ayurveda as a science makes a lot of sense. And I'm sure there's a lot of ways in which Western 
science can test those things. But it seems like ultimately yeah. there is a there is a gap between the way we do science in the West mm-hmm. and and saying that well you know Ayurveda is a very very personalized treatment for one person in one moment in time. It's almost like like the way we do science in the West can't evaluate that. You know, like it's uh, like it's it's more yeah. it's it's so holistic that you couldn't yeah. you couldn't subject it to the kind of clinical trials that we like to to dis- what we try to discover I, truth. Yes, I agree. I I agree. I have heard since I've been away from India, you know, like I'm not really there to get all the information, but I have heard that they are doing a lot of research in India about, you know, on with Ayurveda, but I have not read anything yet and uh, I don't know much about what what they have found or how how they even could do it. As you said, it's difficult, and I totally agree. It is you know, because it's so personalized, and how do you evaluate it, right? Right, and uh, yeah, that it would almost <laughs> that there's there's, some, there's it's very useful to like take people yeah. and to take a whole group of people and to give them you know to separate them into one diet or another, and yeah. And at the same time, the 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 long tradition of Ayurveda that that maybe could mm-hmm. never you could never prove it, right? There's parts yeah. of that that are so like you could never find a thousand people with exactly the same problem. And yeah. you know, it's like I don't know, like in the West, like you could you could take a thousand people and say, oh, we they all have type two diabetes, but in in Ayurveda, I think maybe they would. All those that same thousand people would look very different from an Ayurvedic diagnosis, right? Right. Yeah. So they have you know excess yeah. of vata or pitta, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah, I feel for me, I feel like there could be that uh, the treatment, you know, the choice of treatment is decided based on the personality, the psychology of the person, the lifestyle, uh, you know, the and the social environment and all that. So the treatment is based on that, right? But when you look at the actual physical ailment, we all probably, you know, all diabetics would have probably the same symptoms or similar symptoms, right? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I guess to, so the, to us. Yeah. So the yeah, and that's that's why I feel like it's uh, that's where the difference is that the treatment is based on uh, the individual person, and uh, how do you how do you bottle that? <laughs> right. Well, and and yeah, there's also the challenge that you know we we want to we want to make this simple for people, and it seems like it's, yeah. it, it would like can you can, is there a way to do like Ayurveda for dummies like you know, if you're saying that, that the right the right mm. treatment is based on your psychology and all these other factors, yeah. that kind of, that kind of feels yeah. like it would could disempower people. Like how the how the hell do I know what to do? It's so it's too complicated. Uh, so how how do you help yeah. people be empowered with this science? Okay, so I have not really studied Ayurveda deep, uh, like you know, in school, but I have read about it and I've done a few like you know they have these quiz to figure out which body type you are and to understand what the different body types are 
And then I have done a self-evaluation also, observation, self-observation of who, dwell, which body type I resonate with. And from my own experience, I can tell you that it has helped me a lot to, you know, like trial and error, figure out what really, whether it really works for me. And from my personal experience, I can tell you that a few minor changes and awareness of my body type has been enough, you know, has helped me enough. Like, for example, I am a Vata Pitta. Uh, so what that means in Ayurvedic principles is that I have a drier constitution. So I am always drawn towards, you know, uh, keeping warm. Mm-hmm. I'm, uh, I feel cold very easily, so I like to keep warm. I like to eat food that is like soupy because a dry, dry constitution means I'm drawn towards something that is more moist and, you know, uh-huh. uh, ground. And I'm dry and it's, a, it's the constitution is of air, like movement. So it's very airy. So what that means is I need something that is grounding me, you know, like to, to calm me down, to hold me down because I'm like floating all over the place probably. So what that means is I'm drawn towards food that are grounding, like beans and rice and warm and a little spicy. So this is just my own observation of myself that, oh, this is, it is true. I am like that. And I feel that is all I can do without really going too crazy about it. Mm. So so it's, it's almost like we we don't have to give it over to experts. Like, so if you're sick, it's great to have a, mm-hmm. an Ayurvedic doctor or, you know, or a Western or had to have an expert, but that we can, yeah. we can learn to trust our own bodies around these things. Yeah. Like you, you know what it's you're drawn just, to. Yeah, exactly. What you're drawn to understand whether, you know, what that does to you. Like I, I am drawn to, you know, spicy food, but if I, if I keep on eating spicy food for weeks together, I know I feel, you know, it's a little too much. I like spicy food periodically. It's like in cycles because I'm also pitta. Pitta is fire. Fire is spice. So spice cannot be drawn, you know, like fire cannot be drawn to spice because it's two of the same qualities. But I am also vata. So sometimes I'm drawn towards spicy. And then if I've done enough of it, it drops. If I overdo it, it tells me, my body tells me that you've overdone your spicy. Now you need to calm down, you know? Mm. So the, just those kind of observations. Another thing is like the different spices. In the in Indian kitchen, you'll find so many spices. So each spice resonates with a certain body type. Like, uh, you know, there are calming spices. Then there are spicy, you know, like hot spices. So you based on your body type, you are drawn to certain dishes which have certain spices or you put certain spices in your dish to complement your body type. Now, those small things, you can just observe. Like, I like cumin a lot, you know. It's nice, it's calming. It's not too calming, it's, you know, it's medium. Then there is uh, you know, black pepper, which is spicy. Uh, I can do a little bit of it, not too much. So all these kind of simple understanding of what your body likes and what your body doesn't agree with. It's just, I think Ayurveda on a basic level is just teaching you to be in tune with your body. That's it. That's all. That's the simplest way of understanding Ayurveda, I feel. 
Mm. And it's 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 such a an important you know path to walk because you know even like you know the in the debates about diet in the United States, there's one group that's saying okay. everybody's different. And yes. they, they use that to say, well, some people need lots of meat and like, you know, bio individuality. And, and then there's people yes. who say, no, every, there's one human diet. And Ayurveda is kind of walking a, a very sensible middle path between that. That's, yeah. saying, that's saying, yes, we're all individual and we're all part of the same species. And so we have, we have certain, yes. we have certain you know, commonalities mm-hmm. and constraints and we figured that out by ourselves without having to rely on outside experts. Yes, that, that is it. Yeah, it, it is. Um, yeah, the people who say that, uh, you know, we are all different and we need have different needs are, are right in certain ways. But for my, for me, for those people, I would question like, yeah, at what point, you know, does your need become somebody else's responsibility like the like the animals you know mm. that's that's a really that's, interesting context yeah yeah i feel you know like yeah i think within this area of whole food plant-based lifestyle your needs can be met you know i think that's where you know when you say i have certain needs uh, we all have different needs I feel yes, we all have different needs, but all our needs can be met in this in this lifestyle. Mm, that's a, that's a that's a beautiful way to to not have the argument. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I I like to think of this life uh, this lifestyle as a very a li- lifestyle of abundance. You know? So it's it's not restricting. Yeah. Yeah, I like to look at it from the positive angle. Mm-hmm. So the, the the forks over knives, the cookbooks that I've seen, and the, and this one, it feels like they, they they're aimed at people who are just beginning the journey, who are sort of like transitioning, a, a lot of people, and mm-hmm. so I'm, I'm wondering if you see, you know like do you eat this way or is this like a little bit too rich for you or maybe too much sugar or spice like is there a trajectory that people tend to go through or should go through? Like once once they've mastered this, uh, then you say this way of eating. Uh, you well, mean like the, specifically like this this cookbook? I'm wondering if you if yes. you conceived it as for people who are transitioning from cheese pizza and spaghetti and meatballs, and so you know three years later they might be yeah. eating differently than this cookbook. Like how do how do you see this? Oh yes, yes. I I feel like the. the the way I see this book, it's like for people who are really transitioning, they get an idea that, hey, you know, I can eat all these things. And there are many of them are familiar, you know, like the spaghetti and meatballs is now spaghetti and lentil balls. Then I have baked ziti and I have the enchiladas and the mashed potato and gravy. There's so many dishes which are familiar names and familiar burgers. There's a black eye pea burger, there's the falafel. All these things are familiar dishes, but I can still have them. I'm not giving those up. And then at, at the same time, there are some easy recipes like the quick and easy where I just mix up, you know, beans and rice. Or there's the, there are different types of stews which you can make a whole pot of and just eat it for the whole week. 
So it's like giving them what they need, where they come from, they'll find something here that's, you know, that could be helpful to them. Mm-hmm. If they are, they are, you know, well, you know, like a really experienced chef, but they are transit, transit, transitioning into this diet, then they can try anything here and they won't feel intimidated, right? And then if, if somebody who's been, you know, mostly eating packaged food for a long time, you know, or buying food from outside and now they want to make their own food, then there are some queasy, easy dishes like the easy Mediterranean pizza or the noodles or, you know, the quick bowls. So it's based on where you are, you will find something here that could work for you. And if not, then you can start from wherever, you know, like it is, you know, you can start with trying out some advanced recipes and seeing how you feel, or you start out with the simple recipes and then gradually advance to the, to the ones that are more complicated. Right. Although they're not that complicated. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> I've kept, yeah, I wanted to ask sorry. you about, about that because a lot of the recipes call for other recipes. Right, so within the, yes. within the ingredient list, like you know, use the, like the date paste or the marinara sauce or tomatillo sauce. So yeah. I'm wondering, like, it's it seems like you need to do a fair amount of preparation. Like, what what are the what are the like staple mm-hmm. recipes that you would recommend people have in their in their pantry or their fridge that that you know that are in the book that then they can use yeah. to to make the rest of the recipes. Yes, so for that, exactly, we have the basics. The basics are the vegetable stock, the date paste, you have the almond milk. Now, this is for people who like to have things, you know, who like to cook things from scratch, like you want to make your own almond milk, or you want to make your own uh, pizza crust, or uh, the marinara sauce. You make it, you freeze it, and you always have your home-cooked items. And if not, then you can buy store-bought. You know, there are many products now which are oil-free available in the store. You can keep those in in your pantries. And always have, like, you know, grains. Sometimes you you have packaged or frozen grains in your pantry or your freezer or cans of beans or cooked beans at home. You cook them and then you batch them up, uh, batch cook them and freeze them. So these are the basics that if you all have these in your freezer, these recipes become so much more simpler and easy to make. That's great. Yeah. Um, so the date paste and some of these items are like, you know, you won't have the cleanest of uh, sweeteners. And date paste is such an easy recipe to to make. It's just, you know. It's just a matter of blending it. it. In 15 minutes, you have it ready. All you have to do is just soak it overnight, maybe, and the next morning you'll have a, a big batch of date paste that you can freeze, and it'll last you for a month, so you don't have to think about it again. Gotcha. gotcha. Yeah. All right. So the the book is available, you know, for every, everywhere people can buy books. How can people yeah. stay in touch with you? Like, what what else? What else do you offer? Aside from having written this cookbook, what else? What else do you do for folks? Um, well, I work with folks over knives. I'm the culinary project manager, and so we have a lot of projects going on. We have a meal planner service. So if you if you want us to help you plan your week's menu, uh, we provide every week a menu, 
uh, with a shopping list when it's a very customizable uh, planner. So it's based on how many people in the family, what kind of uh, you know food choices you la- you know you have, and uh, it's it's and every week we provide new dishes and they're all within thirty to thirty five minutes. Most of them are within thirty minutes. So that's a simple way of you know mm-hmm. also planning your weeks and you know transitioning and, and, and into this diet. Find, and people can find that at forksoverknives.com. Yes, they can. Okay. Do you, guys, do, you guys launch, yeah. do you guys launch your own line of prepared foods? Yes, we just started off with the salad dressings, and we'll be having more products later on. But right now, we started off with three salad dressings. And there's a, a, a fig, pomegranate, figs, pomegranate, and sesame orange mm. dressing. Yeah. That makes sound wonderful. Yes. Yeah, so there's a lot happening here, and that keeps me busy, and I'm constantly developing new recipes. So, yeah, yeah, your listeners can find me through uh, Forks of a Knife or through my own website, darshanaskitchen.com. Okay, I'll put that in the show mm-hmm. notes. Yes. <laughs> Great. Well, you know, I can't mm-hmm. wait. I just I got the book pretty pretty recently, so it's... It's one of those sad cookbooks that doesn't have any stains on it yet. So I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna remedy that today. I'm gonna do. You have one of the recipes is uh, uh, pasta alla norma. Yes. Which involves eggplant, and we just got our last eggplant harvest from the garden, and they're sitting there begging to oh. be to be eaten. Oh, wonderful! Oh, that it's gonna taste great with the fresh eggplant from your garden. Wow. Yep. So no no oil, no cheese, but it kind of looks like a eggplant parm sort of dish. Yes. Yes. So I'm, uh, I'm I hope you really enjoy it, and please let me know how it goes. I'm I'm sure I will. Mm-hmm. I, I, I will okay. let you know. Well, Darshana Thacker, thank you so much for all the work you do for for supporting the vision of Forks Over Knives with such delicious food, and for taking the time to talk with us today. Oh, uh, thank you, Howard. Thank you for having me. You too. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Plant Yourself podcast. Be sure to check out the show notes with links to Forks Over Knives and the cookbook and Darshana's own website, Darshana's Kitchen, at plantyourself.com slash 183. If you're new to the show, you can catch up on 182 archived episodes over at plantyourself.com. And if you get the podcast, but not the weekly email newsletter, get over to plantyourself.com and sign up. That's pretty much the only way you'll be notified in time when we open the doors for the Big Change program. Thanks to Plant Yourself podcast patrons, Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Marrow, Elizabeth Clifton, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hatherley, Mary Jane Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly. Ellen, your name is a tongue twister. Ellen Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Behrens, Christine Nielsen, Tina Scharf, Tina Ahern, Jen Vilkanovsky, David Bizak, The Mysterious, Michelle X, Elspeth Feldman, Victoria Dolomanova, Leah Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Landry, Josina, and Julianne Rowland for your generous support of the podcast. Thanks also to Will Reidenauer for allowing me to use his beautiful song, Sabali Don, Dance of Peace. You can find more of Will's music at his website, willreidenauer.com. That's R-I-D-E-N-O-U-R.com. 
If you would like to support the show, you can share this and other episodes on social media and via email. You can write a review on iTunes, or you can become a patron by pledging a one-time amount or an ongoing gift to the podcast over at plantyourself.com. In garden news, the greens have been subject to a few hard frosts this past week, but so far they're toughing it out like the little soldiers they are. Now I feel kind of bad that I'm going to eat them. In running news, I ran to and from the polls this morning. It was a nice seven-mile jaunt altogether. So whatever happens tomorrow, I voted and I get to complain about it. My new running stretch goal is to BQ, which means to Boston qualify, um, and the Tobacco Trail Marathon, which is coming up in NC in March. And uh, according to my age and gender, I need to do that in three hours and 30 minutes, which means I need to run 26.2 miles at about an eight-minute pace. So I dream on and I train hard. My dream race, which will take more funding than I currently have to get to, is the 88K Comrades Marathon in South Africa. They run from the beach at uh, Durban all the way up into the mountains to Peter Maritzburg, which is near where my family and I spent a year a few years ago in KwaZulu-Natal. So if anyone in South Africa is listening and has a bunch of extra funds you don't know what to do with and you want to bring me over to speak or teach or consult or thatch roofs or pretty much anything else, drop me a line in the comments. That's plantyourself.com slash 183. That's it for this week. So as always, be well, my friends. <laughs>